who, uh, who transferred from the PCUSA into the EPC, and we did that in 2007, 2007 that we entered the EPC. And I want you to know that I believe that God has saved the best for me in the last years of my ministry. I love the EPC and am, am just so indebted, so indebted to the Lord for giving us a denomination that stands upon the promises of God, the assurances that this is God's Word, and that we will be a people who will seek to live by that Word and walk by it daily. Uh, for 26 years I served as pastor of Signal Mountain Presbyterian Church in, in Chattanooga and retired there about three and a half years ago and became the interim, shortly thereafter, the interim pastor and now the executive pastor at Christ Church Presbyterian in Dalton, Georgia. I am your stated clerk um, of, the, of our presbytery, the Southeast, which I'm not really sure. I've only been doing this for a year, and I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm making something of it every day. And I want to say this not to my credit. I want to say this to, to the EPC. I don't know of a denomination that could have welcomed all of us to come into the denomination and to literally swallow up what was the EPC by the great influx of our PCUSA refugee churches. But I have been totally amazed at their grace and in their inclusivity of us. And they're wanting us to bring all that we have in terms of our gifts and our leadership there. And was honored that I was the first moderator of the General Assembly from the PCUSA churches. Now, I don't say that to my credit. I say that to the credit of the EPC. Who would have chosen so early in a time is that someone who has not paid their dues in the denomination. But their trust of us and their welcoming of us has been a marvelous, marvelous witness to the Lord about the church of Jesus Christ. And so I, with you today, I give thanks to him for this church that, uh, that builds upon the sure and certain word of God and about the lordship of Jesus and that there is none other. Would you receive with me this morning the, the hearing of God's holy word today as it comes out of the fifth chapter of the book of John. And it's the story, the beautiful story of the healing of a man who has been at the sheep gate for 38 years. And as he's been there uh, pleading and, and depending upon others, begging for his own, um, his own support, it's while he is there that Jesus comes into that sheep gate and the engagement of Jesus with this man who is apparently paralyzed because he is restricted to the ground and to the mat that he's lying on. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord and may we as a people of God give reverence to the Lord speaking to us personally and together as the church today as we stand. And John writes, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had in, been in this condition for a long time, Jesus asked him, Do you want to get well? 
Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to the man, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And the story goes on of the witness that this man gives as others see him walking with the mat and see him now being healed to the glory of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord for us, his people today. Thanks be to God. Amen. In my trips to coming, I have learned several different routes that I would take from, uh, from 75 coming down and usually turn on the, uh, the thank God the deliverer that helps us find our way in our automobiles. And I'm always amazed that yesterday I thought I would be coming through the picturesque countryside that I normally travel to get here, but instead it brought me, because of your wonderful construction that's going on uh, in that direction that has stalled me several times over, brought me all the way to Atlanta in 400 and on up. I'm always amazed at how many entries we have to places that we live and how many of those places are marked and, and are known, whether you're traveling that notorious 400 or whether you're coming across the countryside. And that very much is likened to Jerusalem and being a city that had many, many entrances to that gate, into that uh, city. They were called gates, and those gates were a part of the walled fortress that was built around the city of Jerusalem. And every night those gates would be closed as a sense of security and protection for the people therein. But one of those gates is called the Sheep Gate, and you can imagine why it's called that. It's a broader gate than many of the other gates, and it is the most trafficked gate of the whole city of Jerusalem, simply because it is where they bring the herds of sheep, but also other, the flock of sheep, but also other animals come in through that sheep gate. So if it's the most trafficked and the most well-known, then perhaps you would understand why there would be those who are pleading for money or for help or for assistance that you would know where they would be. They would be where there were more persons coming in and out of the city and giving them opportunity to receive. Now there is there at that sheep gate, there is a pool of water. It's called Bethesda. And that pool of water is known and told in John's gospel to be a, a water that is somehow mysteriously stirred. It starts its own movement, whether that is some form of a minute geyser or what it may be, we don't know. But the stirring of that water related to a mysterious presence, and they believed that if you were the first one who got into the water, that you would be healed. And that is the entry of Jesus coming into this particular city where he begins then to invite this man who has been in that condition of paralysis for 38 years, he invites this man to come to him. The beautiful part of this story is that it tells us more about Jesus than it ever does about the man. It tells us more about the person of our God and the powerful strength and wisdom of our God. 
Because as Jesus comes in, it says that he saw the man with his own eyes. Now, for most of us, that means that he just simply looked upon him. But you know, if you have been with me, and at least in Chattanooga today, that you can, um, you can know exactly where those homeless persons, the street people, are, are, are pleading for, for support. They find, they find themselves congregating out of the finest restaurants in town because as people are leaving those restaurants, they're more likely to, uh, having been filled themselves, more likely to give to them. And it is an uncanny ability that I have of looking beyond those persons. Now, not at all intending to make a statement or, or providing an answer for homelessness and for street people today and the needs of the poor and the oppressed, but I say to you, me, that I look, I look beyond. If you don't know how to do this, I'll tell you, and that is that you lift your head up, you look above their heads, you look beyond them, you look on directly where you're going, and you never look at them. If you ever look at them, you're caught. And Jesus looked into the eyes of this man who had been there for 38 years, paralyzed on a mat. He looked square into his eyes. He looked into his eyes the same as he looked at the man Zacchaeus that was hidden from every other person's eyesight and called Zacchaeus down from that tree to come and to follow him. He looked into the eyes of this man in the same manner in which he looked into the eyes of the rich young ruler and could see there not just a wealthy young man with power, but he saw an empty soul. He could look there and see a woman at the well, and she is not just an ordinary woman. But when he commands her to go and get her husband, she says that she has a husband, and he says, no, you have multiple husbands. He saw beyond the level that you and I see, and it's a wonderful recognition to us that we have a God who knows the deepest need of our lives. How he looked upon my sin and kept looking and kept looking until I would begin to acknowledge with him the deadly impact of that sin in my life. It's only then when the piercing eyes of God in His omniscient character of knowing all there is about our lives, all that there is about who we are, do we understand that this is a God who is not looking at you to expose you. He's not looking at you to embarrass you. He's not looking at you to condemn you. But looking at you to save, to heal, redeem the condition of your life. It's the revelation that we have in this text that our God is so very, very good. He's so very good. And He is one who now, who in such a powerful, powerful way, invites this man, believing that this God can do far more than we could ever ask or imagine or think, and to lead this man to call him the Savior. 
And so the man becomes the one to whom Jesus addresses as if he was the only person in all of that community. And you can imagine there are animals around, there are people bustling in and out in the midst of the day, and Jesus sees him, learns of his condition, the length of it, something about its character of how his paralysis has been. And then Jesus says to him, that piercing, piercing question that says to him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? A ridiculous question we think. You know that the blind want to see. You know that the deaf want to hear. You know that the, those afflicted with disease want to be healed. You know that the sinner wants to be forgiven. Why would you ask, do you want to be healed? It seems so ridiculous to ask a question like that. And yet the beauty of our God is that He asks the right question without condemning or judging or evaluating or saying, you are so slight of faith. He's that God that simply sees this infirmed person and says to him, do you want to be healed? He's actually asking the man about the condition of his mind and of his heart. He's saying, do you want? What is it that you want in your life? And so the man begins to immediately characterize himself by his answer. He doesn't answer Jesus' question. He gives him the reasons he's not healed. And he believes it's tied in with the mysterious movement of the water. That somehow the water is his only hope to be healed. And as he's explaining this, he says, the water stirs and I have no one to help me get into the pool and as I try and you can imagine he tried to drag himself across the courtyard into that pool someone else gets in there ahead of him and obviously believed that that diluted the power of the water some rather superstitious kind of understanding of that pool's activity and he makes an excuse for his life he makes an excuse for his condition I'm still here because I can't fulfill in the way that I think I should in order to be healed. In much the same way that all of us, when he asks us questions about the souls of our lives, we generally become defensive. We have explanations for our conditions. We have reasons for our frailties continuing. Years ago, we lived in, pastored in Montgomery, Alabama. And while we were there, we encountered a, a young boy, uh, 14 years of age. His name is David. 
Uh, David um, had parents but had not been well cared for and they would not have been nominated for parent of the year by anyone. And David's mother dies and um, the end result of that is that, that Jakey, my wife and I, uh, adopted David. Uh, came to us with, with two pair of blue jeans and five t-shirts. He was struggling to stay in school. And we watched in amazement as God transformed this young man with grace and with love and encouragement. And he went from that struggling academic situation to being graduating top in his high school class and graduating Phi Beta Kappa from the University of Alabama. Uh, David is the apple of my eye. <laughs> Uh, if you are here today and you're an adopted child, I just want you to know how precious you are, that you've got to be chosen. I told the other children in our family, I, I made no bones about it, we love you because God gave you to us. We love David because we got to choose David to come and live with us. And we watched a young man whose whole life,